you can either do nothing or you can do something do what you can with what you have so you can try to squeeze a little bit of adventure into whatever free time you have with the money and resources that you have and to always look for the opportunities for adventure rather than lamenting the barriers that get in the way of adventure. I am the only person to have walked in space and gone to the deepest point in the ocean. Hi, I'm Kathy Sullivan and I'm an explorer. Exploring doesn't always have to involve going to some remote or exotic place. It simply requires your commitment to put curiosity into action. So join me on this podcast journey as I reflect on lessons learned from life so far and from my brilliant and ever inquisitive guests. We'll explore together in this very moment from right where you are. Spaceship not required. Welcome to Kathy Sullivan Explores. Before we take off, I have a gift for you. I believe that no matter where you are today, an active thirst for knowledge will help unlock your ability to live a life of meaning and happiness. So I'm sharing some lessons I've learned on my road less traveled. Over at kathysullivanexplores.com, you'll find my seven astronaut tips to improving your life on Earth. When you sign up, I'll send them to you and also make sure you're the first to discover future podcast episodes and learn more about exciting adventures ahead. Just head on over to kathysullivanexplores.com. The first question to ask Alistair Humphreys if you meet him is, where did you sleep last night? And don't expect a conventional answer. Odds are he'll tell you about the little hill he spotted on a map out in the countryside or hidden in the heart of a big city where he rolled out his sleeping bag on the ground and bedded down for a night in one of his micro-adventures. Alistair is passionate about the value, indeed the importance, of adventure in our everyday human experience. His books and blog are full of the nuggets of insight he's gained from his own adventures, as well as tips to help us average bears shake off the everyday and live a bit more adventurously ourselves. I hope you enjoyed this short adventure with the boy who biked the world. Alistair Humphrey is speaking to me from his shed out behind his home just outside of London, and the very first question that's just so obvious to ask you is, where exactly did you sleep last night? <laughs> well, I have a very boring answer, which is I slept in my uh, warm, fluffy and comfortable bed, which as winter approaches and it rains and rains and rains, sometimes seems the nice place to be. But yeah, I do. I do very much enjoy nights on hills, nights by rivers, nights in forests. But last night was a, a warm, comfortable bed. Nice, but a boring answer. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> that's quite all right. Alistair, I'm always fascinated with how people became the person they are when I meet them and speak to them. And you've written a bit about some of your early exploits in your 20s. But if you go even further back, tell me who you were as a as a five-year-old, six-year-old. <laughs> I was a, a very normal, happy little boy in a normal, happy little family in a normal, happy little village up in the north of England, um, an area called the Yorkshire Dales, which is a very beautiful part oh, of the country. Oh, I know it. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. Ah. I did some of my university studies as a geology student at Yorkshire Dales. Ah, okay. Well, yeah, lived near a 
Malam Cove and uh, right. and Gordel Scar, which is a huge collapsed limestone cave from back in the yeah. day, uh, which has came to prominence most in my life because I used to work in the ice cream van at the foot of it for all the uh, <laughs> local the walkers and visitors and tourists. So yeah, I just had a normal happy life uh, countryside. I think that was an important part of it because it gave us the freedom to myself, my brother, my friends to to play, to play outside, to ride our bikes and climb trees and do stupid stuff down by the river and just have fun. So it wasn't particularly remarkable, but I suspect that outdoorsy side of things and the freedom to go and wherever I wanted to was a, probably a lucky part of it. You've got this massive wall of books behind you. So I have to ask, were you a bookish child as well? How how did school fit into all your adventuring? Yeah, I liked, uh, I really liked reading as a kid. I was pretty good at school, but not that enthusiastic. So I did enough to get good enough grades that my parents didn't tell me off. And I did fine. Um, <laughs> I, I did pretty well, really, but I wasn't that excited by school. I was, I was more excited by reading books. Uh, I used to love at home on rainy winter's days, like I mentioned, sitting with my back up against the radiator in my bedroom. I always remember that, reading books till your back gets too hot. So yeah, reading books yeah. has inspired me. And actually it was reading books of travel and adventure that nudged me towards that direction. When I was at university, actually, I should have been reading books about science. Uh, I was actually reading <laughs> books of adventure. So yeah, reading, reading, reading has been, I think, the most important part of my education, reading widely and of my own choice and purely because it interests me. Yeah. You know, I can think back to a book I think I read when I was about 12 uh, that was, in its way, very travel-oriented. It was James Michener's Caravans. So it was set in, uh, I guess, early post-war Afghanistan, told about a, a young British diplomat who ends up off on this grand adventure with the tribes up in the mountains. Had a huge influence on painting a picture in my mind of the kind of adventurous life one could leave. Did you have a similar book at age 10 or 11 or 12 that really kind of set a beacon in your thinking? N not, not that early for me. For me, it was really when I was about... 18 was when I first started to read travel and adventure books. And there were two in particular. There was a, a guy called Ranulph Fiennes, Sir Ranulph Twistleton Wickham Fiennes, which is a brilliant upper class British explorer name. He's still alive and kicking and yeah. hardcore yeah. explorer guy. Uh, but his first book, uh, Living Dangerously, really made me think, wow, the, there are some crazy ways to live a life. And around that time, also, I read a book by Benedict Allen, who walked through the Amazon as a young man by himself. And that really fascinated me. And then once I got to university, then I was just hooked on down the rabbit hole of reading travel and adventure books. Yeah. What, what was it about those books? Was it the way they evoked place? Was it the the hardships, uh, the external things? Was it the internal character that came through? I mean, what mixture of those things do you think really hooked you? Yeah, I don't, I'm not sure there's anything specific about those two, except that they happen to cross my radar at that time. So if, if you'd given me a dozen other similar books, they would have probably had a similar impact. Right. But what really appealed to me, particularly about Ranulph Fine's books in my early 20s, was this he was trying to, he was tough. He was tough. And I was a wimpy little kid. And I really liked the idea of trying to be 
not ordinary, but extraordinary and to prove myself and test myself and push myself and to try to set start high standards for myself, set the rules for myself, but then see if I could live up to the rules of my game. So it was very much trying to prove something to myself and I suppose prove something to the outside world, but very much just trying to be a tougher person than I originally was. Yeah. What did you study in university? Something that in the end has become pertinent to the exploring and adventuring you do now? I studied zoology. Right. And like too many people, it was wasted on the youthful me. <laughs> to be honest, when I was at university, I mostly just wanted to be out exploring the world because I was also reading loads of books that just got me excited about what other parts of the world look like, uh, mountains and deserts and jungles and all the stuff that I didn't have in boring old Britain. I think when we're young, we often think that where we live is really boring and that adventure hmm. is out there. So I was really hooked on the idea of being out there. So I wasn't really interested in zoology at the time. Nowadays, I read loads of science type books, but back then it was wasted on me. And, and then after that, I... I really just wanted to go off and have a massive adventure, but I had enough of a sensible streak to think, let's just get a qualification in, under my belt first. So I trained to be a high school teacher. And once I had that qualification, that was a sort of reassurance, a safety net that I wasn't going to starve to death and I could get out into the world and go have some adventures knowing that there was always that option if I needed it. So I trained to be a, yeah. trained to be a high school teacher and then I... Uh, finished university, jumped on my bike and started cycling. You know, teacher training in the United States is stereotypically seen as, you know, all very bookish learning about pedagogy and not very, some would say, not as much as should be about how to storytell, how to convey information in, in an engaging way. As all stereotypes, I don't think that one's really on point for many of the good teachers. But I wonder how it was taught in England and whether that bit of your training, would you say in any way it has helped you become the storyteller you are now? We would have split roughly in our time between learning ourselves in classrooms, lectures and things. And the fact that I can't even begin to remember what we did in those months perhaps tells you something. And then the other half... <laughs> it maybe of... sort of confirms part of that stereotype. <laughs> yeah. the, other, the other half of the year was we got unleashed on the classes of kids in the local area. And of course, that is the stuff that sticks in my head, the excitement, the terror, the that horror when you lose control of a bunch of teenagers, but also the thrill of when you connect and they actually get interested in something you're trying to tell them. So yeah, that was absolutely crucial to trying to learn how to communicate, to tell a story and to hold an audience. And yeah, I think that part of things has been absolutely really helpful for the stuff I've gone on to do since. Yeah, there are those magic moments when you realize something has clicked with either one person or more in your audience. And they're, I mean, it's not, I think it's got to be a bit like a music performer or a stage performer. Now there's something happening that's very compelling between you and the audience. And, you know, you're, at least for me, energy goes up and focus goes up and it's, it's like being in the flow. It's really remarkably fun. Yeah, and then you, it's a, then a positive feedback loop, isn't it? Because you do your job better, they pay attention more, and suddenly you've got, oh, yeah. that's my favourite class. I really like yeah. those yeah. guys. They're really nice. So, yeah, so I, I really I really enjoyed my year of teacher training. I found it hard, but exciting, and I was pretty good at it, I think, and I was really enjoying it. And the placement school, we get put in different schools, and, right. and the, the final placement school we went to, the head teacher there, um, he said to me, 
you're doing pretty well. Would you like to have a full time job at the school once you've graduated? Which for most people on the course was the would be yes dream gladly. thing. It's like great. I'm, I like the school. I'm doing well. Yes, please. But <laughs> somehow, in, in instead, it just instilled a note of terror inside of me because I suddenly <laughs> thought, "Ooh, I like this school. I'm doing quite well. I can get a job. I could well be here for the next forty or fifty years. Help!" Um, so uh, I decided. So I thought, right, this was my decision moment of I'm going to say no, thank you to the nice, comfortable job, and I'm going to commit to going off on some big adventures and. They're only going to help me be a teacher, perhaps later on in life. But yeah, that really was my moment of prompting me to run for the hills. Well, it's like a lot of things in life, isn't it? It looks a bit dreadful and frightening before you're doing it, and afterwards, it's you know you really relish it. Just, it was great. It's the up and down side of a hill, kind of. Yeah, yeah. I think yeah. trying to dare yourself to lean into the scarier options generally works out for in an interesting way. I think. Yeah. So how old were you? I confess I have not yet read The Boy Who Rode His Bike Around the World, but tell us a bit about that bike adventure. Why Why was the notion hop on a bike? And you know, when you set out, how clear was your notion of what you were going to do and how far and how to make it all work? I was 24 years old, just when I was graduating then, and, and I, when I got offered that job. And I'd, by then, I'd done some fairly long bike rides by then, so two or three months in some pretty wild places in summer vacations and things and so i i'd realized that i really wanted to go see more places in the world i wanted to do it in a way that was physically challenging and demanding but also a way that would allow me to interact with all the people you meet along the way mm. i was young so i didn't have much money uh, my life savings then was seven thousand pounds that was a big factor in any decisions that yeah. i made and add all of those things up together and you come up with a bicycle as being the perfect exploration vehicle it's cheap it's quick but not too quick it's it's hard work but not too hard work and you you're free above all you're free you put a tent on the back you can go literally anywhere on the planet camp by the road stay in the totally self-directed yeah so that that was what really excited me so i had a map of the world on my wall and I started looking, oh, it'd be great to cycle from England to India. And that's a sort of classic overland adventure. There's all sorts of books of people doing that through the right. ages. As I looked on the map, I thought, well, if I get to India, I'm halfway to China then. So I might as well carry on a bit. And if you get to China, <laughs> I might as well go to Australia. And so the idea grew and grew in a fairly ridiculous way until I started declaring to anyone who'd listened to me in the pub that I was going to go and cycle all the way around the world. So that became the plan to see. What, what time frame was this? I'm thinking the politics of all those places you'd be cycling through. Well, it turned out to be fascinating time, actually, because I set off from England uh, planning to cycle through Europe and Central Asia to um, Afghanistan and on towards Asia. I set off in August 2001. Wow. And I was in Germany, cycling through Germany on September the 11th, 2001. when. Ooh. The whole world changed uh, in all sorts of ways, but suddenly a little um, jolly bike ride through Afghanistan didn't seem quite the uh, quite the idea it had seemed <laughs> a couple of weeks before. So how did you adapt to that? What did you do? Well, I, I mailed home all my winter big down jackets and my giant winter sleeping bags, and I bought a pair of flip-flops. And in Istanbul, I turned right and headed for Africa instead of Asia. So All right. All my planning and organizing had been about to cycle through Asia. And suddenly 
I'm in Turkey buying myself a map of the Middle East and I rode through Syria and Lebanon and Jordan to Egypt and then headed down East Africa through Sudan and all the way down to South Africa that way. So all the big, all the careful organizing and planning I'd done out the window and I had to make it up as I went along. And I've I've always been quite grateful for that because I, I'm not the sort of person who would have just set off to cycle around the world with zero planning at all. So I needed to have enough planning and preparation and caution to persuade me out the front door. And also, I suppose, to reassure my family that I wasn't a total idiot. <laughs> yeah. um, but, but once I was actually cycling through countries, I realised you don't really need to plan any of this. It's just a bicycle and a tent and not much more than that, really. And then so being able to be spontaneous once I was out on the road was a great aspect to it. So a balance of planning and daring myself to be more spontaneous than my natural uh, inclination. Did you just stretch that 7,000 pounds all the way around the world or did you pick up bits of odd jobs or contributions to the cause along the way? No, I more or less just lived incredibly cheap. So I didn't have to pay for transport, of course. I crossed the oceans by boat rather than plane. So I was just buying the cheapest food everywhere I could, sleeping rough. <laughs> um, so I had to pay which, for... Which for the American audiences means out away from town on the ground or maybe in a pop-up tent of some sort. Yeah, yeah. So I had a tent, but I'd just sort of be camping in the woods or just out of town and somewhere like that. But also I got invited to stay in the ho homes of loads of families around the world, rich and poor, different religions and races. And that's a wonderful part of the whole adventure. And then after a couple of years, I started to write an occasional article for a, for a newspaper about the trip. I remember getting paid £300 to write an article, and I just felt like the richest man in the universe because <laughs> by, the, by then I'd been on the road for a long time, and you can cycle a long way with £300 worth of instant noodles. <laughs> yeah. What prompted the start of writing? Had you, you talk in some of your writings about reaching a point where you realised you'd love to find a way that you could get some compensation for doing these adventures that you'd like. Had that crystallized or were you just had, you'd had an experience you were just eager to tell the world about? What happened? When I was a student and daydreaming about adventure and reading all these books about adventure, part of the daydream I had, as well as me being off in these heroic places, having a fun time, part of my daydream was, well, I'd love to be a writer. Wouldn't that be great to earn a living from just doing adventures and writing. I thought that'd be fantastic. I hadn't really got any training in writing. Science writing is different to adventure mm. travel writing. Yeah. But I think the best training is just reading a lot. So really, it was because books had inspired me to want to travel, They, the natural follow-up seemed to be to, to write about it. And I, it was always just a a vague daydream rather than an actual plan. My set in reality, I assumed that at some point I'd run out of money and then I'd go and be a teacher. That was what I assumed would happen. But the the dream was for writing, and I really enjoyed um, blogging as I travelled. It was actually really interesting because I was doing that bike trip when blogs were quite new to the early two thousands. Yeah. Blogging was suddenly a possibility. I could write something in an internet cafe with a dial up modem in. Africa, upload it, and you could read that back home. Wow, amazing. Like tomorrow, right, yeah. day after it happened. But, so I had that connectivity, but I didn't have today's incredible connectivity, which 
means that adventurers today feel compelled to update Instagram and Twitter every 10 minutes. I didn't have a mobile phone. I didn't have a laptop. So I was only I was only connected when I got to a big city and an internet cafe. And the rest of the time, I was totally disconnected. And looking back now, I feel incredible gratitude at that balance of a tiny bit of connectedness to start to grow an online audience, but very little really compared to today and therefore the freedom to just get on and enjoy the experience. It's an interesting progression, isn't it, from the very early explorers of 16th, 17th, 18th, 19th century. And we could only read their letters or their logs maybe a year or something. I mean, they'd be gone for two years and then a year later their letters might come out and you could get that sense of what they'd been through. You could update people every couple of days or once a week or something with that connectivity. And like you say, now there's this, you know, every 30 second expectation of, you know, show me your lunch and show me your dinner and show me the bike and show me the rock you just hit on the road. It's like you're hardly doing the experience so much as just being a conduit for others to see glimpses of that. And they're not really, I don't think they're really feeling it. They're getting glimpses of what's happening to you. Yeah, it's a very, very different thing. And there, there are pros and cons of all sides of this. But interestingly, at the moment on Instagram, I am currently um, posting a daily update from an expedition I did 10 years ago right now. So I walked through the empty quarter desert in the Middle East following the book of uh, Wilfred Thesiger, his book Arabian Sands. And it just so happens that it's 10 years ago now. So I'm personally enjoying seeing these old pictures and I'm yeah. up to, I'm uploading one a day. But one thing that I remember a lot about that trip, it was complete empty desert, pulling a big cart, myself and a friend, very, very remote. But that was the first expedition I ever did where my priority was the filming of the journey. Until then, I'd written, taken pictures, bits and bobs, but always the journey was the priority. And this was the first thing I ever did where the filming was more important to me to the journey. And I don't think that made things worse, but it made it very, very different. Um, mm. So it's quite interesting to think about what you're trying to get out of the journey before you commit down some sort of storytelling route. Yeah. There are loads of things I'm curious to explore with you. I have pages of notes of things I'd like to talk with you about, about these notions of adventure and exploring and traveling curiosity. You know, it's a set of things I think about a lot, you know, given my own background. And I hardly know, I really hardly know where to start, but let's try this. I'm curious what your take is. Your focus and the keyword of a lot of your writing and filming and blogging is adventure. My keyword has always been exploring and I think a common thread between the two, at least one of them, is curiosity. But I'm curious what your take is about, let's just stick with those three words, how much they're complementary or, or key points of distinction or borderline synonyms of this impulse or this essence of experience that you highlight so much in your work. Yeah, I think that, that certainly the, the Venn diagram of the three words overlaps a lot. Um, I think exploration and adventure I think often are used as synonyms, meaning the same thing. But I, yeah, I've always called myself an adventurer rather than an explorer. And my reasoning for that is that to me, exploration is adventure plus purpose or adventure plus discovery. There's something extra to it beyond just the excitement, the desire and the curiosity to go somewhere new and to 
have a fantastic time. So I, I, I've never felt comfortable calling myself an explorer. Although interestingly, in the last year, having been traveling around the world, I've spent the last year exploring the map that I live on at home, the once 10 mile hiking map centered on the suburb that I live on. Very small, tiny little area, not very exciting. But interestingly, I have been calling myself, I have been thinking of that as exploring because I'm finding places close to home that I've never been to before. Whereas all my big stuff, I always see that as adventure. It's it's fun. It's personally fulfilling, but I'm very aware that I'm not expanding the sum of human knowledge by what I'm doing. But I think what does link these definitely is curiosity. And earlier I mentioned that my some of my motivations for adventure are about trying to prove myself and 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 to feel tougher and maybe more of a man, whatever that means. And and that was a sort of young man's motivation towards these things. But as I started to get that side of things out of my system a bit, increasingly everything I've done has been focused very much on curiosity, just thinking, I wonder what things are like over there, or I wonder how I will cope in this situation, or I wonder what I might learn if I try that. So curiosity is my primary driver these days to do adventurous things. That's a really interesting point because I think I'm wired somewhat similarly. I could interpret even your younger male urge as, let's say, the ill, the poorly phrased version of curiosity about, could I do that? You know, could, could I do what Sir Ralph did? Could I, do you think I could pull that off? I, I wonder what it would feel like if I was in those conditions. I wonder how I would respond to those conditions. And sort of a, a hope, I guess, that I hope I could. Well, let's go see if I can. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah. I'm sure there's a very similar but overlapping thing that drives people yeah. to do what you do, what I do, but also I think to be soldiers and some sort of scientists and all sorts of things is that that curiosity of, I wonder if I'm up to the test. Let's have a try. Yeah. So you've talked a good bit already about what motivated you to go on expeditions and adventuring. A lot of your writing is encouraging and urging and, and giving people tips for how they can bring more adventure into their life. And tell me a little bit more about why do you think that's important? Yeah, I, it's. I'm sometimes interested in myself that it doesn't feel sufficient to me to just go off and do this stuff, which has been great for my own self-confidence and my own education. But I feel some sort of need to preach about it or bang on about it to other people. And I think there's a few things. I think partly it's the background of teaching you know when you learn interesting things you naturally then want to go and tell those to other people who you hope will also find them interesting and useful i think a lot of it has been from gratitude of just thinking wow these adventures and travels they've done so much for me personally i i want other people to experience that side of things as well and then and uh, probably a more pragmatic thing has came that I started writing blogs and then started writing books. And I started earning a living by giving talks about adventures. And through that grew some semblance of an audience of people who are also interested in this stuff. And what I learned there was that there's a lot of people who love the idea of adventure, but have no idea how to actually do it for themselves. And in my own way, I built up quite a lot of knowledge, not particularly useful knowledge for humankind, but not nonetheless useful. I knew quite a lot of stuff about how to do this. So it seemed quite low hanging fruit for me to just 
tell people the stuff that I knew. And also people love knowing that sort of stuff. So that the the blogs and books and talks I was doing that were factually telling people how to do adventures are some of my most successful ones. Interesting. What's your sense of your audience makeup? I mean, I imagine it's pretty different from your books to your blogs to your talks, but do you have any any sense of composition by by age or by I am an adventurer and want to hear from another one versus oh I think I'd love to be one of it but I'm a little bit afraid of doing that you know which mix do you think you have yeah so you're right to point out that it depends on the different platforms of things but generally when I've been researched into these things it's roughly 60 40 percent male the age of the audience is usually roughly about my age. And I say that because I've been doing this for over 20 years now. So my my audience is also getting older with me. <laughs> We're aging and challenges are shifting together. And I think mostly it's not really hardcore people, uh, the hardcore adventure fraternity, because I'm not actually particularly hardcore. I'm very much the everyman's adventurer. So people who are interested in elite climbers, elite mountaineers, elite people the sort of people you look at and go wow that's just crazy but yeah, it's Sir not Ronald. for me <laughs> exactly or Alex Honnold climbing the uh, in Yosemite that that's not really my audience my audience is normal people like me who have normal lives but maybe just need a little nudge to actually use their weekends to get out and ride their bikes a bit more or dig out that tent and put it to some good use yeah the the banker who dreams as you did when you were young, <laughs> a little different dimension to my everyday life. Yeah. Yes, yeah. I love your idea of micro-adventures. Short, simple, local, and cheap. And and I also love the way you pair that with adventures for kids so that, I don't know, that banker family living somewhere in central London might find a little micro-adventure around them that it's not Everest, but it's it's cut from some of the same cloth as doing in Everest, just on a scale that you can reach. Is that the right idea? Yep, yeah, you've uh, summarised that very well. But And I think the essential part of it is, if you don't have the time or money or expertise or whatever to climb Mount Everest, you can either do nothing or you can do something, do what you can with what you have. So you can try to squeeze a little bit of adventure into whatever free time you have with the money and resources that you have and to always look for the opportunities for adventure rather than lamenting the barriers that get in the way of adventure so yeah i very much moved from the big adventures around the world to just spending years really just trying to encourage people to have these short local micro adventures so sleeping on local hills, uh, swimming in rivers, climbing trees even. I do a monthly tree climb, which is a wonderful way of noticing the universe moving around and the seasons changing. So yeah, look at look for the opportunities, not the barriers. That's the essence of micro-adventure. And uh, you mentioned the kids, is that kids love adventure. They've got all the adventurous spirit in the world. When I go into schools and I say, who here wants to cycle around the world? Every single kid goes, yes, me, puts their <laughs> hand up, puts their hand up in the air. Uh, you go to an audience of adults and say, who wants to cycle around the world? Everyone starts to go, oh, well, I'll need to buy a really expensive bike. <laughs> and, uh, oh, I'm not sure about the Oh, oh man, adults are so boring. So children are curious and playful and adventurous in a way that us adults could do with learning from a bit more <laughs> often. If you're talking to that adult who's throwing up all the barriers in their minds about adventuring. What would you say to them about, what will you get out of trying a micro-adventure? 
I mean, you'll get you'll get bugs in your clothing when you sleep on the ground and mud on your pants and yeah, but yeah, and you'll, and you'll have a terrible night's sleep. Yeah, a terrible night's sleep. So, what's your answer to someone like that about why is it valuable to you to do some adventuring, add some adventuring to your life? So what? <laughs> One thing I've really noticed in my campaigning for micro adventures is that I'm always kind of preaching to the converted, singing to the choir. I've I've never had much success at finding audiences who just look at me completely blankly like, I've never, ever thought of doing this and I have no <laughs> desire to do this ever. And of course, there are millions of people out there and they're the people who I wish I could nudge them to go have a walk and climb a tree and swim in a river. But I don't. I haven't really succeeded in reaching them. So pretty much everyone I ever reach, I don't yeah. need to answer that part of the question because most people, as I imagine everyone who listens to your podcast, is, 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 they've got some inclination. They know why they want what's good about an adventure, even if they don't want an uncomfortable night's sleep and don't want to get mud on their pants. They could. They know what adventure is in their soul. There's a, a guy called Wally Herbert. He... Um, was a British Arctic explorer, did some amazing stuff up at the North Pole. And he used to say, if you ask the question why, then you will never understand the answer. So I think most people, they kind of know why. It's the practicalities yeah. of, okay, how do I fit this into my busy schedule? And I live in a town. How do I find some green right. space? Yeah. But what would your answer be to that person? Okay. Uh, <laughs> I mean, that was a very nice dodge, but what okay. would your answer be to that person? My answer would be that, yes, you'll get a terrible night's sleep and it's uncomfortable and it's hard work and it's cold and it's wet and it's miserable. But when you come back home again, you will have earned the right to sit on your sofa. And when you next sleep in your bed, as I did last night, you will be grateful and appreciative for that. And you'll think, oh, this is so warm and soft. And you will remember to appreciate it and you'll be grateful for your normal life. So I think there's an aspect whereby the deliberate struggle of adventures, the deliberate misery and hardship and simplicity just helps you appreciate normal life. That's that's a big part of it. Also, I think doing something that you think might be hard and then you do it, it surprises you and you feel more confident as well. And then a final aspect might be that I just think that going out into nature of any description whatsoever just makes you feel a bit happier and calmer and you turn off your phone and just enjoy that for a little while if nothing else yeah a bit of the healing calming power of nature mm. there's a notion uh, i've read about in research here on this side of the pond about our culture and you may not know i, I ran a hands-on science museum for a decade so i got immersed in you know audience dynamics and psychology and what's moving people motivating people to do things 15 years ago now but it was the notion that we've come to be uh, I think the phrase was an assured experience culture, meaning I don't just want to go to Paris. I want to go to Paris and know I saw the right things. I know <laughs> okay. I got the right pictures yeah. and I didn't miss the palace. You were, it's kind of like there's a checklist. If you did X, you know, do be sure you know, ate at that restaurant, saw that museum, did this, did that, and bring me the, you know, those are the stories that you're expected to be able to tell when you come back. And I mean, I've seen this manifested in some crazy ways. I remember just one example, a tour group of adults who I guesstimate were uh, in their 60s, arriving in a city tour, one of our cities, at the converted train station that now was an eclectic arcade and shopping mall. 
And their guide takes them to this mezzanine where you can sort of see the whole layout and explains, well, you can go here, or you can go here, or you can go here, or you can go here. And they all watch, and then they all say, well, what should we do? I mean, they were not even spontaneously comfortable enough just just wander and have some set of experiences. They wanted to know they hit the cool shop or the cool restaurant. I don't know how prevalent that really is. I wonder if you've encountered bits of that kind of thinking in, you know, in your engagement with audiences and, and whether you think is that part of the impediment to going and doing an adventure? Mm, that's really am interesting. I, am I supposed to do it that way? Well, yeah. you know, did I did I sleep in quite the right place? Yes. Was there a better hill I should have been on? <laughs> yeah, that's very interesting. And uh, you could pair that with the research of when people are asked, would you like to go and have this dream holiday of a lifetime? No expense spared. The catch being when you come home, your memory will be erased and you will never remember it ever again. Most people think, nah, I won't bother because they so much of it is just have, ticking the boxes rather than just that living in the moment experience of it. Well, also the coming home and sharing stories of an experience, I think, is part of what we true, all value. True. And, yeah. Yeah. So I often find that people want recipes for adventure. So they want me to tell them which hill to climb and which route to follow. And my book, Micro Adventures, which is full of ideas about places to have adventures in theory anywhere in the world, because I deliberately yeah. don't I don't mention any place names in there. I don't have any maps in there. And that's probably the major complaint that I get against it is what well, yeah, show me how tell me where to go. So what so it's the I suppose it's a little bit like the um give a man a fish or teach them to fish. I, I talk about the, the joy that I get from just getting a map and learning to interpret a map and to look and think, oh, look, there's, some, there's the town and there's the railway line and there's a small station out there. And then two miles away from there, you see some greenery and some woodland and some contour lines. So that suggests a hill. And then you can look on the internet and work out which angle the sun will rise. And you can think, oh, if I camp up there, I'll put my tent up and the sun will rise. So I personally really enjoy that planning side of things. But I think it's probably just another aspect of uncertainty of not knowing. So you don't know what's the right tent to buy. That's one aspect of it. But also, you don't if you haven't done an adventure, you don't know how to do it is is this am i are we on an adventure now is this how it's supposed to be so i can actually <laughs> yeah. i can sympathize with that notion to it but i try and encourage the ideas for people to plan stuff themselves and i very much hold back from the recipe side of adventures the guidebooks yeah uh, you're challenging them to add some of the creativity and and face some of that uncertainty i mean it, it, real adventures where you've moved beyond your known perimeter your comfort zone they're inherently have dimensions of unpredictability and uncertainty which lots of people are very uncomfortable with yeah. but if they don't then you're on a vacation not an adventure right and the for me the the planning of adventure is a really fun part of it i know for a lot of people the coming home and the telling and the sharing and the remembering is but that never has been that much for me. I'm very much, hmm. when I, and I think that's slightly because when I get to the end of an adventure, I think, oh, I've succeeded at this. So it obviously wasn't as hard as I thought it was going to be. So <laughs> maybe it wasn't hard enough. So I tend, to, I tend to enjoy the planning, the anticipation, the doing, and then the completion. And afterwards, I always feel a bit of an anticlimax, really. So yeah. the preparation's a big part. Bit of a downer, yeah. Mm. One of your 
blog posts, you've got 10 rules or guidelines for adventures from setting outrageous goals to remembering what you call the doorstep mile, that first step. Uh, Like so many things in life, it's the doing of it is not as hard as the getting started on doing of it. Not quitting, refusing to quit, but knowing you might fail, might not work out as you thought, and a bunch of other ones. And they're all right on point, it seemed to me, but a bit of a challenging statement to you. It struck me that there are also bits of wisdom that life has lots of ways of teaching us. And so I'm wondering if, if you would agree with that, that you've encountered and learned these and you highlight them as they are taught by going on adventures. But would you agree these are elements of wisdom that living life and taking on any number of challenges might teach you? Or is there something particular and special about adventure as a teacher? No, I don't think so. In fact, I'm often quite conscious that my life is so unbelievably comfortable and pampered and easy that I need to try and get some sort of meaning into my life by eating cheap food, sleeping somewhere uncomfortable and having a really hard time. In other words, being like about three billion poor people in the world. So so I'm conscious of the artifice of what often I do. It's of you know, all these adventures, they're tough, they're difficult, but they're kind of playing at real life. So I'm very aware that I've I've got a lucky, easy, privileged life and that you could get all of this. So you said wisdom, not me, but all of this wisdom you could get from many, many other aspects in life. So it is but one thing. Uh, but having yeah. said that, I having said all of that, I think that if you've got life going along and there is some space in there to squeeze in some adventure, a bit of challenge and a chunk of nature and wildness, then I I don't think you would regret it. And I think the things you learned from that would be beneficial. I would completely agree with that. And I think there's a bit of societal good beyond just the individual fulfillment, because a society that's of somewhat more enriched and attuned and you know self-aware and environmentally aware, other aware people has you know, got a lot more resilience to it, I think, than everyone locked in their own, just their own little rut and their own little track. Yeah, absolutely. And then plus from an environmental aspect, which feels ever more critical and urgent to me, I think um, as David Attenborough and probably lots of other people on the internet have said that you can only love something once you know it and care Mm -hmm. about it and ideally have seen it for yourself. And so I think everyone can get their own version of the overview effect by going out into their local nature, their local park, their local woods. We're not going to care about any of this unless you spend some time. Experience it, yeah. Yeah, you're, I'm sure, familiar with Richard Louv's book, The Last Child in the Woods. Yes. Which you know goes into this a lot about what, what gets lost when we lose emotional and physical contact with the natural world around us. Mm. So we're close to time, and I, I think I have to close on this note, and it seems, I don't know, I'm quite loving the bit of poetry of it. One of my, probably my all-time favorite travel adventure quote as T.S. Eliot's, and I won't try to recite the long version of it, but the the essence of it to me has two prongs. The first prong, this part is accurate, the end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time. But there's a second part, just a few lines later, that comments on the hidden waterfall, children in the apple tree, not known because not looked for. And as you talked a bit about your local adventures, the work you've been doing in the last several years just in your little local 10-mile area, 
it seems to fit Elliot's quote really quite well. Back to the place you were before, after you've gone hither and yon and all across the world, and and now slowing down and pausing and looking more quietly and noticing the hidden waterfall and the children in the apple tree. So I'd love your reactions to that sentiment. Yeah, well, the the first part is a, a phrase I'm fond of and know well and often fi- and feel is very, very relevant to the local adventuring I've been doing recently, but also I think is an important aspect of one of the main things I learned about going all the way around the world, eventually you come back home, you start to know yourself a bit. And I think that's an important part of growing up and developing. So yeah, I'm, I'm fond, very fond of that aspect, but I didn't know the second few lines. So I quickly jotted those down to go look those up because what what I started trying to do was to, firstly, I wanted to go all the way around the world for all the reasons young people have always wanted to go around the world. And then I started to do micro adventures because I realized that most people have this adventurous urge in them, but they also have a busy job and they have a family and real life gets in the way and we can't all just disappear off on adventures. And that micro adventures is a way of living adventurously, but with the constraints of real life. And then more recently, my the single map, just trying to really minutely pay attention to the 10 miles where I live just outside London. Above all, what that's made me realize is how little I've noticed in my life until now that I've really been, even though I've thought of myself as being a curious person, I'm a travel writer, for goodness sake, but I've been walking around with blinkers on. I haven't noticed the leaves and the trees, the apple trees. Um, We don't have any waterfalls around here, sadly, but (laughs) yeah, paying attention, being astonished and telling about it to steal from Mary Oliver is a, a good way to be, I think. Mary Oliver is always a wonderful person to steal from. Maybe the lovely way to put a bow on this conversation is, I will read that whole passage of T.S. Eliot. It's from Little Gidding, Four Quartets, originally published in 1943. And it goes like this. We shall not cease from exploration, and the end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time. Through the unknown, remembered gate, when the last of earth left to discover is that which was the beginning. At the source of the longest river, the voice of the hidden waterfall, and the children in the apple tree, not known because not looked for, but heard, half heard, in the stillness between two waves of the sea. Lovely. That's fantastic. Yeah, well, it's T.S. Eliot, right? <laughs> Trust yeah. me, it's not Kathy Sullivan. <laughs> yeah. Clever guy. Yeah, very good. Mm. Well, Alistair, um, I started with where you slept last night. I suppose I finally should ask what your next adventure is, even if it's just the next place in your 10-mile map. Yeah, right Right now I'm um, buried deep in book writing of the, of the local map. Yeah, I call it a single map because... Uh, there's a, a little YouTube video which I really enjoy. It's about running in the hills. Not quite T.S. Eliot, but th- the end of that, he's talking about these local runners in the Lake District in England. And he's kind of jealous of them. He's always going all around the world. And he's kind of jealous of these local guys who just know these few small hills. And he wonders whether, in the end, a single mountain range isn't enough exploration for an entire lifetime. So I've stolen that. And I'm now wondering whether a single map isn't enough exploration for an entire lifetime. So, yeah, that's what I'm busy with these days. Well, I will look forward very much to reading it when it comes out. 
Brilliant. Thank you very much. That'll be two readers. Yes. <laughs> your, your wife and me. Well, that's a start. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, Alistair, uh, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been absolutely a delight talking with you and learning more about your adventures. And for everyone who wants to follow even more, we'll have Alistair's website information in the show notes. AlistairHumphreys.com. It's a good starting point. And I, I can't wait to see a single map. Thanks again. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks so much for joining me on today's mission. For more solo shows and deep dives with incredible guests, along with all the ways to get the podcast and much more, head over to kathysullivanexplores.com.